Well, good morning, church. I'm Pastor Brad. I'm the uh, interim lead pastor here at uh, Hillcrest Church. I've been here, this is my third Sunday. First Sunday I was here, the, the sanctuary was comfortably full. People were gracious, welcomed me warmly. Uh, last week, church was equally comfortably full. People were a little less gracious, welcomed me a little less uh, friendly. Third week here, sanctuary is empty. Welcome. Welcome to Kansas City. Well, as you know, we are uh, in uh, the midst of a sermon series that I am calling This Is Us. Yes, I stole it from that uh, popular TV show, and the subtext is uh, Becoming the Church That We Were Meant to Be. And we began this sermon series last week by looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and Paul, in the letter of Ephesians, is providing us with a framework for a kind of renewed understanding of our identity in Christ. And you heard me refer to that many times over the last uh, sermon last week. And the most important component of this identity is our relationship with Christ. It's not some of the other things. It's not how uh, often we make it to church, thankfully. It's not how uh, uh, generous we are. It's not about how spiritual we may appear on the outside. It fundamentally is about who uh, we are in Jesus Christ. So today, I want to direct our attention to the second half of chapter 1 of Ephesians, where we will discover that living into our identity in Christ leads us to the recognition that not only is our identity found in Christ, but our security is also located in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time, especially in these days. Our identity is not only located in Jesus, but our security is located in Jesus. I think this is a pretty timely message in light of all the stuff that's going on around us in our communities. A few years ago, there was a very nice couple uh, from the state of Washington where uh, they had their 15 minutes of fame when they discovered that they had won the Mega Millions jackpot. And I've always wanted to uh, win the jackpot. I've, I've prayed about it. I've, told, I've promised God numerous times, God, if you let me win the jackpot, I will, I will, I will give it away. And, and, and my wife occasionally reminds me that I have to play Mega Millions in order to win it. So that, that, that presents somewhat of a problem. But one moment, this, this couple, this older couple, they were just average, retired people living in eastern Washington in a wonderful middle-class neighborhood, and the next moment they were sitting in front of this entire bank of microphones where the media were probing them about their newfound millionaire status. And this couple took this event in stride, and as the gentleman began to tell the story about about hearing the news for the first time that he had just become a, a multi-millionaire, he concluded his comments by saying this. He said, we're not going to screw this up. We are going to leave a legacy that long outlasts us. We're going to leave a legacy that long outlasts us. What I think Paul is trying to suggest to us here in the book of Ephesians is the same thing. He is describing a legacy, an inheritance, if you will, that has been given to us in Jesus Christ that will long outlast anything else that we could possibly imagine is more important. So when Paul speaks about our inheritance, he points to four evidences that accompany the person who is living into their inheritance in Jesus Christ. Here they are. 
the posture of prayerful thanksgiving, and I, I see that at verse 15 and 16, and we'll get there in a minute. The uh, preparation of the Spirit that is at work in us as we are discovering more deeply what it means to have an inheritance that's in Jesus. Uh, we become people uh, who are purveyors of hope, not despair, when we are living into our inheritance. And finally, the visible presence of God in our lives becomes more evident, more robust, if you will. So when Paul speaks about our inheritance, he's not considering piles of money or, or summer cottages or children or grandchildren to whom we can uh, leave our wealth when we die. That's not what Paul's considering. Our real inheritance is not found in that stuff. Rather, our inheritance, the inheritance that Paul is referring to, is our identity in Jesus Christ that we ultimately pass along. And if we're, if we're being marked by the, by the thumbprint of God, which I suggested to you last week, then we are heirs of God. And as heirs of God, we are recipients of God's inheritance. So the first evidence that I mentioned a moment ago of Jesus Christ is this posture of prayerful thanksgiving. Paul says it like this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Ever since Paul had heard about the faith of the Ephesians, his heart was filled with a prayer for them. Prayer, as, as many of you know already, is, is not something that Paul took lightly. It's not something that he did haphazardly, nor should we. The kind of prayer that Paul is talking about is really a posture. It's a, it's a disposition. It's, a, it's an orientation of our heart that connects all of the pieces of our lives, whether they're good, bad, or sometimes ugly. So when Paul ponders the reality of the Ephesians' newfound faith, he's compelled to pray. He is moved to give thanks. Our posture, you know, reveals a lot about us. If we're having a bad day, you can see that on somebody's face, the way they slouch. If we have low self-esteem, that's evident. If we're exhausted, you can see that. You can feel it in the conversation. Dinner table conversation of, of when I was a kid, my mom was continuously saying to us kids, hey, st stop slouching. St stop it. I mean, that was a common refrain, every, every meal. In order to live into our inheritance in Jesus Christ, no matter how we may feel about the circumstances that are currently surrounding us, we must maintain, we must, we must lean into this posture of prayerful thanksgiving. And this, this really begins with the very simple recognition that God is the giver and we are the receivers of this inheritance. There's really nothing that we can do to, to earn it, to expedite its coming to us. A posture of prayerful thanksgiving is, is an open-handed posture towards God. And what God is already doing in our lives, rather than a closed-fisted posture towards God and others, right? 
I don't know if any of you managed to get out in the last few days to go to the store to pick up uh, necessary items, toilet paper, whatever. But uh, it feels a little like, like Christmas shopping on Black Friday to me. I mean, people lined up five deep at Target. It was, it was uh, amazing. Uh, people's carts stacked high with items that they think they will need to sort of wait out the, the pandemic. There's a, if we're not careful, there can be a closed-fisted kind of character to all of this anxiety. There can be fear that is, that is uh, more evident and the jostling of the, of the grocery cart to make sure we get in line. And uh, I, I typically, when I wander around in a store, I was in a store yesterday, and, and I, I often look like I'm lost anyway, but in this case, I, I was trying to decide between two lines because you always want to get into the shorter, faster line. And so I made a move this direction when the guy behind me made a move in that direction. And then at the last minute, I changed my mind. And then I realized that he had come into the line. And I looked at him and our eyes met. And he said, yeah, okay, go ahead. You can get in line in front of me. I thought, well, thank you. You know, I, I'm new here. And I'm finding people in the Midwest in general and Kansas City in particular to be really warm and welcoming people. And he goes, uh, you're, you're from Seattle, aren't you? I go, yeah. How'd you know that? He goes, because you're wearing a Seahawks shirt. Oh. And he goes, I used to live in Seattle. And I said, and, and we had a very nice conversation. So in the midst, of, my point is this, in the midst of all of the anxiety and the craziness and the pushing of cards, there in the middle of, a, of, of the jostling, this gentleman and I had a wonderful conversation, and, and that would represent a little bit more open posture, I think, than the closed-fisted kind of posture that we feel. As, as followers of Jesus, I might say this, that we have right now, this week, maybe next, I don't know how long, this unique opportunity to embody a different kind of posture, don't we? A posture that speaks of our confidence in God, a God who's in control, a posture of compassion to, towards those who may be affected most, who, who may be shut in, who may not be able to get to the places that they normally get to. A posture of generosity. So uh, this is an opportunity for those of us, church, to do something different with the free time that we have. Now, I know some of you are working just as hard uh, by uh, being at home as you would be if you went into the office, but there's still more time because you're not driving, you're not commuting. So I want to invite those of you who are watching this service and participating with us right now to go down to the connection card section and, and, uh, and check in if you would be willing to be part of uh, sort of a support team that we're trying to put together here. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet, but we'll get in touch with you. So if you think in the next week or two you will have time and a willingness to embody a more open kind of a posture and be willing to help in any way that you can, click on the link below this video and uh, put your name down and, said, and say, I'm in. That's all you have to write. I'm in. We'll know what that means. Why should we adopt this kind of a posture, you ask? Here's the reason why. Because there is nothing that we have done. There are no hoops through which we must jump. There is no accomplishment to which we can point that will change the fact that the God is the giver of this inheritance. There's nothing. 
The posture of prayerful thanksgiving is the recognition that we belong to God and God will ultimately care for us no matter who we are. This posture of prayerful thanksgiving reminds us that our lives can be filled with the the satisfaction of God's blessing, even when it doesn't always feel like it. We don't always need to be at the front of the line in order to be thankful. You know, I heard an interesting story recently about Olympic athletes who train their entire lives to succeed in whatever their particular sport is. And, of course, there are only three winners in any given event, right? There's the gold medal winner, there's the silver medal winner, and there's the bronze medal winner, and then there's all the rest. And somebody has done some sort of survey of, uh, of medal winners, and they have discovered that... Um, Even though you don't win the gold medal, sometimes the athletes that are happiest, are most thankful, are the ones that come in second or third or don't medal at all. They're just thankful for being there. It's similar to one of my favorite TV shows, American Idol, where when somebody gets knocked off and they interview right outside the door and they say, you know, I'm just thankful that I had an opportunity to be here. You see, when things are going well, the posture of thanksgiving reminds us from whom all our blessings come. When life is hard, on the other hand, when the pain seems almost unbearable, the posture of prayerful thanksgiving is an acknowledgement that we would not make it if it were not for the sustaining support of a God who's got our back. So the first evidence of a person who is living into their inheritance in Christ is the posture of prayerful thanksgiving. If this posture is new to you, or if you find yourself having a hard time being thankful once in a while, I would like to encourage you to practice this posture of prayerful thanksgiving. The next practice for living into our inheritance is this, uh, pre- the preparation of the Spirit, which I see at verse 17. We are not left on our own to struggle through life wondering whether we are pleasing God in any given moment. We have not been left alone to try to figure everything out by ourselves, even though some of us uh, behave like that. Paul says that since before the foundation of the world, the Holy Spirit has been at work in us, forming us and shaping us into who God is creating us to be. This is important for us to remember because if we don't understand the work of God's Spirit in us, we will spend our entire lives trying to to measure up to some arbitrary ideal that we will never reach. And we will protect our own expectations of what God is doing on, excuse me, we will project our own expectations of what God is doing on others around us. So it's not only our own perspective kind of gets whacked, we, we project that on people around us. If the Spirit of God is at work in those who are in Christ, why are there so many followers of Jesus who are anxious? The reason is because ultimately each of us can choose to allow the work of the Spirit in us, or we can thwart that work of God's Spirit in us. We give permission to God's Spirit 
in a sense, the same way that we give permission for someone to enter into our living room from the front door. I don't know if you've ever tried to ski, downhill ski. I've done it a couple times, and um, uh, when I was younger, I liked to ski mogul fields because I had the ability and the dexterity at that point to do it. Now I prefer the bunny hill, frankly, but nevertheless, you, you discover when you try to ski moguls that you can't plow through the moguls. It, it, it's, it's, well, some people do, but it, it, it destroys the moguls and you have to take a lot of uh, ibuprofen later on that evening if you do that. You can't create your own path. You, if you want to ski moguls, you must bend and respond to each mogul. And the more you do that, the easier it becomes. And the preparation of the Spirit is kind of like that. When we begin to start making room in our hearts for the Spirit to do the Spirit's work, then it becomes easier over time. And let me, let me be quick to say this. This preparation of the Spirit often hurts. One of my favorite characters uh, in literature uh, is that kind of illustrates this image of pain that I'm talking about is from one of the stories in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where Eustace Scrub, isn't that a great name, Eustace Scrub? I, we, should have, we should have named one of our kids that, dear. Uh, he's this nasty, he's this selfish school kid who wakes up to discover one day that he's become a dragon. And in order for him to turn back into a little boy, Aslan, the lion must take his claw and rip through the layer of the dragon, revealing the real Eustace. The preparation of the Spirit is a little like that. It requires the Spirit to, to shape us in order to reveal the person that God is creating us to become. The work of the Spirit sometimes has to tear down the, the fortresses that we've built up to, project, uh, to protect our fragile egos the, the work of the Spirit may take away our cherished securities in order to make room for God's dwelling presence in us. And maybe uh, you're experiencing that acutely right now. The good thing is, is that the Spirit knows us, knows us intimately and takes great care in the work that must take place in order to achieve God's desired end. It may hurt. It may require us to change. It may require us to address our sin and even our own brokenness, but the work of the Spirit is always good. The next evidence of those who are discovering their inheritance in Christ is that we are purveyors of hope. Verse 18 reads like this. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul prays that our eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may know the hope which, to which we have been called. This hope to which Paul refers is not the kind of hope that says, hey, I hope the sun comes out today, or I hope I win the lottery today, or I hope you, you're, you get your car fixed and it doesn't cost you that much. That's not the kind of hope that Paul's talking about. The hope to which Paul is pointing is a hope that is rooted deeply, profoundly in Jesus Christ. We have hope because we believe in a God of hope. We have hope when we feel like the Spirit is ripping us to threads because we have confidence that our pain 
is only for a while. And we have confidence that God has our best interest in mind. Know this hope, Paul says. Know this hope to which God has called you. Know the hope that is part of the very character of the God we worship and is part of the imprint that God is placing in our lives. You see, the last thing the church needs right now are those who, who run around and, 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 and see the sky falling everywhere they look. The last thing our culture needs is a church that joins the chorus of doom and gloom. You see, I never grow tired of the voice of the one who calls out to me in the midst of life's stormy season. He says, don't give up. Don't give in. You are not alone. This too will eventually end, hopefully sooner than later. Paul is calling to us to be purveyors of hope in a world that doesn't have much hope. This is not just shallow optimism. This is a deep abiding confidence that overcomes our circumstances and calls us to be voices of hope in a voiceless world. Did you hear that, church? We have been given voice to be purveyors of that hope. Now listen, what voice would you rather listen to? The voice of hopelessness and despair or the voice of a confident hope that is rooted in the very character of God? Finally, Paul gets to the crux of the matter in verses 19 to 23. Where does this confidence come from? Paul's answer is very simple. It is the power and the presence of God. Look at how Paul describes it at verse 19. And his uncomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but in the, one, in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits everything in every way. A friend of mine recently observed that as Paul tries to describe the nature of this power and presence of God in, in a person's life, he kind of trips over himself a little bit here because he runs out of words, he runs out of metaphors as he's trying to describe this power of God, this presence of God at work in the world. And of course, the reason for this is because it is indescribable. For Paul, there are no words that can adequately describe the power and presence of God. We used to live in New York State a couple hours from uh, Niagara Falls. And whenever visitors came into town, we put the kids in the van and we went to see the falls. So we saw them many, many, many times. But I remember the first time that I stood on the ledge looking out at that serene lake at the top of the falls thinking, what's the big deal? You know, I could see mist rising in the distance. I could hear the, the roar, or the thunderous roar of the water. But all I could see was this placid lake of the Niagara River right above the falls. And then I walked a little further down the path 
to where all the tourists were gawking and hanging over the edge with their cameras. And I, I looked out, and, and the raw power and beauty of this falls caused me to take a step back and caused, and, and I, I had to catch my breath. I didn't recognize the power of Niagara Falls until I looked at it from a different vantage point. You see, I could have gone home without taking those few steps closer to the edge and bragged to all my friends that I had seen the power of Niagara Falls without actually seeing it. I'm afraid that that's how many of us relate to the power and presence of God in our lives. You see, we hear other people talk about it. We see the evidence of God work, works in other people's lives, but we never step close enough to the edge to experience God ourselves. As Paul gropes for words to describe the impact of our identity in Christ and this inheritance that God offers us in Christ, he's trying to give us a vantage point from which we can begin to see the power and the presence of God at work in us. Paul uses phrases like this, mighty strength, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. These are all um, very important words to Paul, which I'm not going to get into today. God has placed all of this under his feet. And then Paul concludes by saying this at verse 23. He has appointed him, that is Christ, that is Jesus, head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Hillcrest Church, the power of God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one from whom we receive our inheritance. And the same power and the same presence of God is revealed through Christ in us. In our posture of prayerful thanksgiving. In the preparation of the Spirit who is shaping us into the likeness of Jesus. In our inheritance is revealed as we live with a sense of hope. And we are purveyors of hope in a world that's filled with despair. You see, if our real inheritance grabs a hold of us, I will guarantee you we will be filled with awe and wonder and we will instinctively take a step back and catch our breath. And when we fall on our knees and give thanks for this life that is not ours to live but is God's to live in us, that's the appropriate thing to do. Do you see what God is up to here? Do you feel the thunder of the water going over the falls as the Spirit is at work shaping you and forming you, maybe even in your pain? Do you need to get a different vantage point in order to recognize the power and the presence of God that has been given to you already? If you said yes to any of those, which I suspect most of us have, then I invite you to join me in prayer. And I actually literally mean that because my prayer will be printed on the screen. So for those of you who are worshiping with us today at home, you can actually uh, verbalize the prayer out loud along with those of us who are here in the sanctuary. So uh, as the worship team comes up, let's pray together, shall we? Holy and all-powerful God, 
Help us to adopt a posture that relinquishes our lives to you. Sustain us as the Spirit sculpts in us a new heart. Open our hearts to the hope in the midst of our present struggle mm. that we may know your power. In the pounding of our chest and in the breath-gasping awe of your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Yes. Amen. <laughs>